So maybe just a sound check for those of you in the back. <clears throat> Can you hear me okay? Okay. <clears throat> so I have a wonderful theme to share with you this evening, and the theme is equanimity. Hmm. <laughs> a nice balance to fear which was actually a wonderful talk last night. And uh, equanimity was, was certainly a part of it and needs to be a part of it. So tonight we'll continue the exploration of equanimity. Equanimity is a theme that was talked about by the Buddha a lot shows up in many of the different lists, as you probably have found uh, out already. There are many lists in this tradition. It's kind of endless, the amount of lists. And equanimity shows up in a variety of them. So the first, of course, the Brahma-viharas, which we've been talking mostly about uh, in terms of metta. And Kamala gave that beautiful talk on karuna or compassion, and equanimity is also a part of that list. I'm going to come back to how that is, where it fits in the scheme of that list. It's part of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's part of the ten perfections. It's also a mental quality that is found in the development of the jhanas or the... um, Uh, Deep concentration states. Equanimity is a product of the lack of hindrances. So when the hindrances are not present, the natural arising is this equanimous mind and equanimous heart. So in the Pali language, the word that's mostly translated as equanimity is upekka. Upeka, U-P-E-K-K-H-A, Upeka. And the direct translation of this word is actually to look over, to look over. And what this is referring to is that equanimity uh, is the equanimity that arises from the power of our observation, Uh, this ability to see without getting caught by what we see. So we see a lot on this retreat, don't we? Just within a day, all the different comings and goings of our experience. And equanimity is this ability to watch, to observe, to be mindful of the comings and goings of experiences without clinging, without attaching to it, without making it more than what it is. This empty arising of phenomenon and then it's passing. So to look over, this this phrase to look over also gives me this sense of having a larger view. So mm, I guess it was last week, a few of us went on a hike 
not too far from here, and we made our way through the forest. And there were no views as we were going through it. It was mostly thick forest in, in our trail. And we just stuck to the trail and mostly followed Sally, who knew where she was going. And then at the very end, you come out to this vista that overlooks uh, beautiful waterways and more forest and uh, greenery. And you could start to see where the leaves were changing in some areas. And it was beautiful, just beautiful. So this, this larger view to look over. So equanimity has this quality of being able to see things clearly as they are, seeing them in the larger picture of things. Oftentimes I think when we are caught by the hindrances, uh, our, our view gets really small, doesn't it? Mostly centered around us and those people or situations that are affecting us. So our view gets very small and... Uh, usually this is, this is due to the clinging, the hindrances that we are attaching to that moment. And so equanimity is this ability to let go of that small view, or at least to hold it in a much larger understanding, a much larger view. This is equanimity. Another word that I found... Uh, that's sometimes translated as equanimity, sometimes as neutrality, but meaning basically the same thing. Uh, this is, comes from the Abhidhamma, and it's a mouthful, so we'll see how I do with it. It's Tatra Majatata. And this word, directly translated, actually means to stand in the middle of all of this. So it gives the same similar quality of having this larger view, but in a way, I was talking about this earlier with, with a dear friend who said, oh, it's kind of like being at the eye of the storm, you know, the eye of the hurricane, where everything is just flying around, all the experience, all of life is moving, it's in flux, it's constantly changing, it's arising and it's falling. And equanimity has this ability to stay in the middle of all of it, to be somehow unmoved, to have stability of mind amongst instability. Where this comes up in the Abhidhamma is actually in reference to the concentrated mind, the unmoved mind, the fully collected mind. So again, this is really speaking to the, this idea that equanimity is a product of this lack of hindrances. Lack of hindrances which arise when the mind is still collected and very concentrated. This is a beautiful quote from the Sutta Nipana. Uh, that just gives the essence, I feel, the essence of equanimity. As in the ocean's midmost depth, no wave is born, but all is still, 
So let the practitioner be still, be motionless, and nowhere should one swell. So that midmost depth, and we touch upon this sometimes, everything else can be swirling around us, or everyone around us can be moving around. There can be sounds, there can be body sensation, there can be thoughts, emotions, And yet there can be this inner stillness that sees it all and just allows it to be so. Not needing to create anything out of it, not creating a swell, an attachment to any such experience, not being moved around, swept away because we've clung on to something and suddenly it's taken us in this direction or that direction. This is the power of equanimity. So you get this sense that equanimity is this, this perfected, uh, unshakable, balanced mind and balanced heart. And that it's rooted in our insight. Rooted in insight. So when we're here on retreat and we are We have all this time to take a very close look at our own heart and our own mind. I know for myself, and I have a feeling this is true for many of you too, that we start to see very clearly how difficult it is to attain and maintain this stable mind and stable heart. It's not easy It's not something you can come in, sit down, and just say, I will now be equanimous with whatever arises. It's something that we have to actually cultivate. It's something that is a product of our cultivation. So this is important to understand that it's, it's, uh, it can be a natural state of being And it's also a state that many of us are not that familiar with, or at least we aren't running our lives uh, in this particular state all the time. So we're having to grow into it, develop it, understand it. This is a commentary on the Brahma Viharas, specifically about... Uh, upeka, equanimity. Looking into life, we notice how it continually moves between contrasts. Rise and fall, success and failure, loss and gain, honor and blame. Uh, These are actually considered the worldly winds. The worldly (laughs) winds, the the winds, the, the... Aspects of our experience that really push us around. Success and failure, 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 loss and gain, honor and blame. We find how our hearts respond to all of this with happiness and sorrow, delight and despair, disappointment and satisfaction, hope and fear. These waves of emotion carry us up and fling us down. And no sooner do we find rest than we are in the power of a new wave again. How can we expect to get our footing 
on the crest of the wave? How can we erect the building of our lives in the midst of this ever restless ocean of experience, if not on an island of equanimity? I love those last few lines. It's so poignant to what we experience here. You've probably noticed there's this constant looking for some kind of stability, something to just rest and build our sense of self, our sense of purpose, even our purpose of our practice on. But everything keeps changing, even within a day. Our emotions go up and down, our experiences go up and down, our thoughts come in and out. Where, where, what do we rest upon? And so this idea here is that we are, are becoming more and more uh, used to uh, this idea of resting in the ever-changing nature of experience. Equanimity allows us to do this, and equanimity is also cultivated by doing this. Here's a very a similar uh, <laughs> uh, take on this theme. This is a sweet poem by Donald Babcock called The Little Duck, which those of you who have sat retreats have probably heard this poem. It's a favorite among Dharma teachers. Now we are really, now we are ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a, a ruckus touch about him. This is some sort of duck, and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold, and he is thinking things over. There's a great heaving in the Atlantic and he is part of it. He looks like a Mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the bow tree, but he is hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you. But he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it was infinite, which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. He has made himself a part of the boundless, by easing himself into it just where it touches him. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion. He reposes in the immediate as if it was infinite. And he can rest in the Atlantic as it heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. And that's what we're doing. We're resting or learning how to rest in the heaving of our experiences, even in the most uncomfortable moments. 
We're asked over and over again to meet that moment just like it was the moment before. And we can do this with the power of equanimity. So you can see that this equanimity is really a mature state. It's a very wise state. We often talk about it in terms of the heart practices, but it's no separate from uh, the wisdom practices. And we see this actually in the Brahma Viharas, how it, it plays into the landscape of the Brahma Viharas. So I'd like to lay that out a little bit for you. So of course we're, we're familiar with metta. We've been cultivating that and practicing that here. And metta really is this foundation of an open heart and mind. We can cultivate it, of course, uh, but a heart and mind that is open and available, not discriminating against any such experience or any particular person, its natural outflow is this friendliness, is this metta. It's its natural outflow. And then when we have this open heart and mind and we see the suffering of another or the suffering in the world or maybe even within ourselves, an open heart and mind, its natural inclination is towards karuna, compassion. There isn't another option it naturally flows in that direction. There is no hindrance there, no doubt, no resistance. And the same with mudita, sympathetic joy, which we haven't really talked about yet. But it's the third of the Brahma Viharas, the sympathetic joy, same thing. It's the natural inclination of this open heart and mind in the face of one's happiness or delight in the world. It naturally goes there. We don't have to think about it. So equanimity being the fourth keeps all of this in balance. So in a way, I see that all three of the previous Brahma Viharas really have to be imbued with the quality of equanimity in order to keep them in balance. So to keep Uh, Metta, for example, uh, from discrimination. So as we do our metta practice and we start to realize and notice who who can we open our heart and mind towards? Or if it's not a person, maybe it's throughout the day and we notice the heart and mind closing towards certain experience. So true metta stays open in, in the face of everything and everyone. It's non-discriminating. It's upekka that keeps it there, that keeps its balance. The same with karuna, compassion. We can so easily get overwhelmed by the dukkha in the world or uh, become quite disconnected by it and, and karuna can easily turn into pity. We pity the people who are are suffering as if their suffering was any different from our own suffering. 
So it's actually upekka that allows us to stay open, to stay in contact with the suffering, the difficulty. It's having that larger view and, and much um, wiser understanding of the way things are that allows us to stay in contact with. Same thing goes with mudita and sympathetic joy. It seems kind of silly when we say it out loud, but um, the near enemy of, uh, of sympathetic joy can be this overabundance of joy, like too much joy, <laughs> which, you know, seems kind of silly, but if you've ever been just over the top excited about something, you've probably, or been with someone who's been over the top excited about something or everything, you can see how that joy starts to get out of balance and even a bit disconnected from the actual moment, what's actually needed in the moment. We lose our stability. And so it's equanimity that comes in that allows for the joy to be there, but to be balanced. When I first uh, began my practice, um, which was quite some time ago, I, I came into contact with this. And in retrospect, I'm, I've understood this greater. But at the time, um, I was developing a metta practice. Actually, I'll back up a little bit. When I first started this practice, I started it in California. Um, actually, it was at Andrea's uh, center uh, with Gail Fronsdale. And uh, I decided pretty soon after finding the practice that I wanted to go to Thailand and experience Buddhism and practice there and uh, live and practice in the monasteries in Thailand. So I went and I did that. Um, I think I was about 21 at the time. And I first went to a monastery in southern Thailand, and this is... Uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa's monastery, if you're familiar with him. He's within the Thai forest tradition. Um, and he was no longer living at the time when I was there, unfortunately. But he does have this incredible retreat center for, for people who want to practice. And it's, when I was there, it was mostly Westerners. There weren't as many Thai uh, practitioners. And a lot of it was taught in English, which was nice um, for me. Um, but the conditions were pretty raw. They were, they were really raw. <laughs> the way that the center was built was so that those who were coming as lay people would have the full experience of what it's like to live there actually as a monk or a nun. And so the practice of renunciation is a, um, uh, a strong part of what they, they offer there as practice. So just to paint a bit of a picture of what it was like from my memory of it. Um, we, I remember the first night we had, we each had our own room, which was nice. Um, and they were in these cinder block buildings and the generator would go out soon after sunset. And so there wouldn't be light, but you were given a candle. Uh, and you were also given a mosquito net and 
a pretty thin blanket, but it was Thailand in, in the hottest time of year, cheap tickets. <laughs> um, so that's when I was there. And um, you laid on a very thin grass mat on top of a cement slab. Uh, part of the renunciation practice there was also to be given a wooden pillow so that you wouldn't sleep much. And it worked. <laughs> <laughs> So it puts things into perspective here, right? <laughs> so I just remember the first night sewing up the holes in my, um, my, my bug net uh, with dental floss because <laughs> there were these huge holes in my bug netting and thinking, oh, <laughs> this is going to be hard. And the wake-up bell was at 4 o'clock and... Um, so got up, was a good yogi. This was my first retreat, by the way. I don't think I said that. This was my first retreat. <laughs> and uh, the day was really wonderful in the sense that it was all practice. It was in silence, but throughout the day, there was a lot of instruction. And every uh, instruction period was taught by a different monk or nun. And so they would come from wherever they were living on the premises and come and teach us something. So there was a monk who would come every morning and he would teach us Pali and chanting. Uh, and then there was another monk who uh, taught us the mindfulness practice. There was a, another um, monk who would come every day and teach us um, the jhana practice, the concentration practice, which was pff, way over my head. I didn't know what he was talking about at the time. And then there was a nun who came every day who taught us metta. And I thought, oh, <laughs> I don't know what this metta stuff is, but that's what I think I need to do in order to survive this. And so the, the teachings were all quite wonderful, most of them. And uh, I listened, but actually what I really took into my practice was the metta practice. And so it became a metta retreat. And it was very hot. It was, uh, the you know, no food after noon, um, which in heat, and there was a lot of uh, uh, yogi jobs, which were pretty, a lot of manual labor um, as part of the practice. And so you'd just be withering by about 2 o'clock. Um, the bugs were on steroids, <laughs> from my perspective. Huge. Um, I'm, not, I'm not that creeped out by bugs, but these were, these were big. <laughs> so you kind of always had your eyes open, uh, looking around if something <laughs> as you were sitting there. Um, but as I started to cultivate this metta practice, something happened. All of these things that could have been huge difficulties and I could have created major hindrances around major wanting for something else and not wanting what was there. That would have been so easy, especially for my mind. I tend to go to the aversive. And to see uh, my mind relax, as I would say the phrases, over and over and over again, through my sitting, through my walking, everything I did, I just kept with the simple practice of metta, and my mind and my heart just began to melt pretty early on, which does, it doesn't always work this way.
but the causes and conditions were just right on this retreat uh, for, for it to happen and unfold in this way. And what I know now that I didn't know then was that this sustained okayness with the conditions and what was arising, it was there due to the cultivation of the metta practice, but it was the quality of upekka, of equanimity, that stabilization of the mind and heart, being able to take whatever the difficulty was just one moment at a time and not being thrown by, by what was there. I had a beautiful retreat. I loved actually every minute of it as, as the days went on. I even was bit by something in the middle of one of the sittings and had this huge blister welt thing that grew on my hand. I still have no idea what it was, but it was very painful. And yet my mind just... It was, no, well, you know, there it is, (laughs) unmoved, unmoved by it. It was so amazing. That was not my, my, the way my mind was in life at all up till this point. And after that retreat, I can't say that all that lasted. (laughs) But while I was there, I got this really deep taste of metta and Um, equanimity and the power of it the possibility of it and that possibility is it's right here it's right in every moment when the the causes and conditions are ripe and when we are aware of that possibility when we're able to relax into that possibility So I've said a lot about the the natural inclination of the mind. And then, of course, just like um, the metta practice or the compassion practice, we can cultivate equanimity in in a similar way with different phrases. So I thought I'd just share some of the common phrases with you. And this, too, gives you a sense, I think, or gave me a sense when I learned them of just the, the fullness of what equanimity practice is pointing towards, the insight that it's pointing towards. So, you know, there's, there's phrases that we can say to cultivate equanimity for ourself. Uh, and it might be something like, may I accept things as they are. May I accept things as they are. May I be undisturbed by the comings and goings of events. Undisturbed by the comings and goings of events. And then there's phrases that we can say uh, for the relationships that we're in, equanimity for others, for particular others, right? So we can go through the same categories as metta. And so it might be something like, I will care for you, but cannot keep you from suffering. That's a hard one, (laughs) especially for the people we really care about. You know, we, and we've, of course we don't want them to suffer. But equanimity has this larger view of understanding that I can be, have my heart open and care fully for you and I can't prevent you from suffering. That we all have to do our own work here. We all have our own karma to bear and to become free from. 
I wish you happiness, but cannot, cannot make your choices for you. Any parents in the room? <laughs> That's hard. That's a hard one. But this is the long view of equanimity, the wise view. All beings, this is now for all beings, all beings are the owners of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depend upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them. So in in reading these, one might get the impression that there's a coolness to equanimity. It's a little bit cooler of a feel than the warmth of metta or uh, karuna, the compassion practice, or even mudita. Um, But actually, I don't think that's true. When we fully have understood what upekka is and we have a mature practice of, of upekka, Uh, This is a heart practice. It's coming from the heart, these deep understandings. It's actually filled with warmth that we may uh, stay open with this heart, stay in contact with this heart, and yet still know that there's only perhaps so much that we can do. That's the balancing factor. We can also cultivate equanimity through the steadiness of our mindfulness practice. So as we develop our mindfulness practice and we begin to see more clearly, we begin to understand these truths, the truths about dukkha, the truths about uh, karma, about um, the changing nature of experience, about this thing we call self, and the truth of that and its ever-changing flux. So even through our mindfulness practice, as we begin to have these insights into the way things are, we are cultivating equanimity naturally through that understanding. It's what ends up being able to hold those understandings as we mature our practice. we can have an exquisite taste of equanimity through the practice of concentration. So if you're developing concentration here, especially when we get into the jhana states, which hasn't been mentioned much, I don't think, on this retreat, but these are just high levels of concentration um, where the hindrances, uh, because of the level of concentration, begin to... um, not arise. And so although these are conditioned states, the jhanas are conditioned states, so they're not permanent states of mind, we still can have these, this taste of the sweetness of equanimity, which can then be a wonderful reference point for us, especially when we're not in that particular conditioned state and we're in the middle of our hell realm, and we can't even remember what equanimity feels like, to have that reference point of, oh yeah, no, I've been there. I, I, know, I know what this is like. I know how, how equanimity can come in. And just to have that sense of equanimity in those moments can be really helpful. 
Another practice that cultivates equanimity is our sila practice. So when we take the precepts and when we practice non-harming here and out in our lives, uh, part of what we're doing is cultivating a mind and heart that can be more steady, can be more in balance. In fact, when uh, monks and nuns ordain in, in a monastery and they, they take the life of a monastic, oftentimes the, the primary and initial practice is that of sila, developing sila. And part of the reason for this is to cultivate this stable mind and stable heart that's imbued with equanimity. So there's all these different ways in which you're already cultivating this quality. You're already doing it here. Whether it feels like it or not, you're doing it. And I think that this equanimity that we're developing here can be a great refuge, especially in times of struggle, struggle and difficulty. This practice, I think I said last week, it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to stay in contact with those moments that are really difficult, where we're really struggling through it. We're just fighting the moment. It takes courage to stay with it. The courage and the heart practices, they go together. And actually, interestingly enough, uh, the root word cur in courage, the Latin, is heart. We need heart to be able to stay with that difficulty, the dukkha. And as we've said over and over, that's where the practice is, is where the dukkha is, staying right there on the edge of it all. There's this beautiful statue at the Forest Refuge, which is the retreat center just next door, part of this retreat center. I love sitting over there. It's one of my primary retreat places. And there's this beautiful statue of Kuan Yin as you walk to the entrance of the, the meditation hall. And she's small. It's a small statue, but really powerful if you take a moment to look at it. And she's standing what seems to be on a bluff over uh, that heaving body of, of water, of ocean. You can see the waves rippling up, and I think there's even some serpent-looking uh, monster-like fish in there right at her feet. And there's wind that's blowing her clothing and her hair back, and so you can see she's in, really in the storm. And yet her, her, her poise is that of stillness and courage. She is an uh, example of compassion, staying with those difficult storms, those difficult swells that enter our experience. And in that is the stability of her figure there that is, I think, I take it as uh, imbued with equanimity. 
keeping it all in balance, keeping her in contact with, keeping us in contact with. I recently, very recently, spent 10 days on retreat at the Forest Refuge and was really looking forward to it. It had been a little bit of time since I was able to sit on retreat. Um, when you start teaching retreats as a, a trainee, you, you find quickly that, oh, this takes up your retreat time. <laughs> and uh, so I was really, really excited about this retreat and was lucky enough to go. And I got there and immediately um, became really sick and ended up having uh, a medical issue that was affecting my digestion and so affected what I could eat and how much I could eat. It was affecting my energy levels. Um, and it was obvious from the beginning when I figured out what it was that this wasn't going away any time during this retreat that I was on. So this was going to be part of my retreat if I was going to stay. And this, I mean, first day, this is what happened. And I could have gone in a lot of different directions with that information. <laughs> there was probably some poor me in there. And I bet, you know, some, some uh, sadness about the outcome of what I thought the retreat would be. There was probably some aversion in there. But really early on, I knew that I was going to have to make a decision to either be caught up by the body dukkha and create mind and heart dukkha along with it, or not. That was the decision. And so the practice, actually, during this whole 10 days, I wasn't able to do a lot of formal practice. I had to spend a lot of time in bed, a lot of time just sitting in a chair um, outside in fresh air. And uh, the practice, uh, my normal practice of going in and feeling the breath and the body was too much with what was going on in the body. So the practice became, am I clinging or not clinging in this moment? And that was the practice. Just this very, taking this very wide view of what's going on right now in my mind. And so it became the um, mindfulness of mind. And it was wonderful. <laughs> so much body dukkha. It actually increased as the retreat went on. It, didn't de it wasn't like I found some, you know, spiritual miracle or something halfway through and it all started to dissipate. It increased as the retreat went on. But my mind was stable. My mind was equanimous. It wasn't like I was overflowing with metta or joy or even compassion, actually. What was present most was equanimity. Simply through cultivation of practice and realizing that that was really my, the option I, I, I wanted. I didn't want to cling to this. It was too painful, actually. It was too painful to cling. And so even with a body that is in great distress, we can still have this quality of equanimity. It's amazing, actually, to have those moments of okayness in those moments. 
Same with emotions. And Guy talked about this last night with his talk about fear and his relationship with fear and working through that. And it took time to cultivate equanimity with his fear. But it was something that did develop through his persistence of staying with it, coming back to it, opening, relaxing, of relaxing in the difficulty. So even in a strong emotion like fear or, or sadness and despair, a depression, we can still hold it as, as we cultivate. It's not like we snap our fingers and equanimity appears. <laughs> but we can cultivate equanimity in this way. It becomes a refuge. And when the practice is matured, our understanding is matured, it's a beautiful fruit of this practice. And in difficult times, difficult situations, a dear friend of mine, many years ago, uh, well, during the recession, actually, this, this last recession, uh, was going through a huge upheaval in his life where his long-term relationship ended, um, uh, his work was really unsteady, income wasn't coming in like it was, which was true for so many people at that time. He was actually lucky to be employed, but he was always on the edge of it. Um, he owned a small house, but a house that was constantly on the edge of foreclosure. So the stress of all of this and what to do next was in the beginning just eating him alive. He was sinking into the dukkha. He was devouring him. And so all he, the way he talks about it, all he could do was to turn to his practice. He, was, he had a meditation practice and he also turned to a yoga practice. So he did both yoga and meditation and just put every uh, extra moment he had into the practice and completely gave himself over to the practice. And I watched him go through this. It was really extraordinary because it would have been so understandable to collapse in the midst of all of this changing, um, disturbing uncertainty that was happening in his life. Uh, He was really close to to truly losing everything and the people around us were losing everything. Uh, And he did what he needed to do. It wasn't like he laid down and said, oh, well, (laughs) it'll all work out. He worked really hard. He did what he had to do. But it was his practice. He talks about the cultivation of his practice and his dedication to it uh, brought in a sense of equanimity even in that time of deep struggle for him. And he, you know, he's made it through okay, you know, okay financially, okay uh, relationship-wise nowadays. But um, really what he got out of it was, as he puts it, it was a time of his life where he, he felt really free. He'd never felt so free even with all this happening to him. It was a state of mind that was changing. He had no control over what was going on outside. He had no control over any of that. 
but he was able to cultivate this equanimity, seeing this larger view of things and finding peace and rest even in all of that heaving of experience. So this is possible even in some of the extremes. And I think it's really important for me to say right now that, you know, and I mentioned it, but to really state that equanimity, sometimes we get this idea, especially in Buddhist practices, that we're we're meant to be really passive, like it's this passive state of being, you know? So um, equanimity, when it's misunderstood, oftentimes comes out as, um, you know, whatever, or uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you can see the disconnect in that. That is, n- that is not a connected heart and mind. Don't forget that the Buddha didn't go and sit in a cave after his enlightenment. He lived in community he was face to face and deeply in contact with a very wise, very open heart with all that comes with community. He spent a lot of time teaching actually to to find ways to instruct his very large group of followers how to live in harmony with Uh, each other, but also with the earth and with the communities that they were in contact with. He was constantly in in contact with and uh, voicing opinion and actually doing something about many injustices that were happening at the time that, of course, history... tends to repeat itself. And so these injustices we can find right here at home, injustices of um, social inequality, economic inequality, gender inequality, uh, issues about the way that the, the land and the earth was being treated. He didn't just say, it doesn't matter. I'm equanimous with this. That's like a spiritual bypass, if you've ever heard that phrase. That's not what he taught. It's not what equanimity is. Equanimity is what allows us actually to stay with and be with those difficulties that we find in our our communities, in our... uh, our own social groups. It's what allows us to stay with it with wisdom and compassion, which, boy, isn't that what's needed? Seeing this larger view of things and yet acting from that, actually taking action to, in fact, live in harmony, create more harmony and less suffering in this world. So this is not about being passive in any way.
this equanimity, I'll just finish by saying in our own, in our own experience when we're, when we're here and we're practicing, it's also, uh, it's this wonderful quality that allows us to relax and trust the unfolding of things whether it's the unfolding of things in the greater um, world or the unfolding of things within our own practice. On retreat, I think sometimes when the difficulty comes up, we get the sense that, sometimes we get the sense that we have to power through. We got to power through this, get through it, get to the core of it, eradicate it, destroy. Or perhaps we have a different way of approaching it of maybe it's we're not, you know, powering through it, but perhaps it's our uh, our judgments that come in. I should be able to get through this. This should be my difficulty shouldn't be lasting this long. And so it's with this equanimity practice, we can bring in this quality of equanimity of holding our difficulties with this wise, open heart, staying in contact with that as well. Being able to trust the natural unfolding of our practice, that these difficulties, remember it's the dukkha that can lead to non-dukkha. No mud, no lotus to really trust in that larger view of things. Wisdom of equanimity says, I don't need to strive. It says, I don't need to try to become anything. It says that I I don't need to cling to anything. We're not becoming and striving and all this extra doing. There's a relaxation that comes with that, an ease, and yet not a denial of what's true, but really in contact with what's true. Really feeling this unmovability, this internal stillness among all of the goings on, the constant change. And so I'd like to end with uh, this quote from the Udana, which is said to be the inspired utterances of the Buddha. And I feel like this quote is really pointing to something quite profound And if you try really hard to understand it with your mind as I'm reading it, you'll just go (laughs) cross-eyed. So let your heart take this in. Don't overthink it, but let it take it in and just settle there. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. 
Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond nor a state between. This certainly is the end of suffering. So let's just sit for a moment and let the words settle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.